Hey everyone, welcome to this new idea for a podcast. Um, it'll be reluctant something, reluctant watch, reluctant view. Who knows? Anyways, my name is Brian. I will be one of your hosts, probably the main host, realistically. And with me today for our very first episode is the man, the myth, the legend. Steve. Hello. It is I, your non-regular movie watcher. And by non-regular, I mean I don't watch any movies. So, yeah, if that tells you anything. So, the idea for this podcast is to get people to go back and watch movies that they have either been avoiding on purpose or just happened to miss. You know, it's a cultural blind spot, I guess. This came about because a friend was talking about, you know what, I'll just save that in the hopes that I get them on to do this podcast at some point. But yeah, so they're saying how they hadn't seen this movie. It's like, oh, you want to you talk about this on a podcast? It's something that they had said, like, oh, I'm only going to watch this if you let me come on and talk about this. I said, oh, this might actually be a thing. But with that being said, the two availabilities that seem to meet up more often than not are mine and Steve's. And luckily for content creation purposes, I guess, Steve has not watched a lot of movies. Yeah, I don't... I watched what was on basically VHS growing up. And, uh, you know, a lot of those VHS movies were Disney movies. So I wasn't gifted with the uh, the large aspect of phenomenal movies that were out there. In fact, my family isn't really a bunch of like moviegoers. Um, I think I can count one hand amount of times I've been to the movie theater before I turned 18, which was probably like five or six. So, yeah, if you have six fingers, you can probably count the number of times I've been to the movie theater. And I have been to the movies with him more than six times personally. So I have doubled his movie intake single-handedly. Yeah, single-handedly. Yeah, so we were going to be talking about Pulp Fiction, because he had given two options, Pulp Fiction and Blade Runner, given the time. It's almost midnight. We haven't started watching. That is partially my own fault because of technical difficulties. But beyond that, I didn't want to get into a movie as heady as Blade Runner that I hadn't seen as much personally, you know, to feel comfortable talking about it. Now, I've seen Pulp Fiction a decent amount of times, but then before we recorded this, I realized found out, rather, that Stephen had apparently seen almost all of Pulp Fiction. He was missing, like, the last 10, 15 minutes. Yeah, I uh, I was watching it at a friend's house, and I just put it on, and I don't really remember a whole bunch of it. I know that there's, like, John Travolta and Samuel L. Jackson, and Bruce Willis shows up and also has Uma Thurman in it. But other than that, it was just like, oh, well, um... Yeah, and so I was telling our host, Brian, 
that, oh yeah, I remember this part and this part and this certain line. He's, and he goes, Steve, that's all the movie. Like, <laughs> that's the end of the movie. I'm like, no way. Like, there seemed like there was way more. And he's like, no, that's like, it goes that line. And then there's like probably 15 or so minutes left in the movie. That's the whole movie. I was like, man, what the heck? I feel like I missed all of it. And so, yeah. So we decided, well, we're not going to do Pulp Fiction, unfortunately. Yeah. So one, it wouldn't feel completely truthful to me if we continued to go on doing Pulp Fiction at that point. But like we said, Steve hasn't seen a lot of movies that people would consider classics. It's not a bad thing. It's just, it's just a matter of circumstances at some point. But here we are to have Steve fill in some of those gaps on our very first episode. And that episode is going to be about Casablanca. Ooh. Steve, what do you know about Casablanca? Well, the only thing I know about Casablanca is it has Humphrey Bogart in it. And Casablanca is a city in Morocco, which is in Northern Africa. Other than that, I know it's an older movie. I know it's in from the 1940s. I think it's a 42 movie. Uh, other than that, I don't know anything about it. I've, I might've heard, but I don't really know. Maybe it's a love story. I don't know if it's a love story or not, but I don't really know anything about it. Okay. So we will save how well you did until the end of the movie or until we discuss the movie after this part. But yeah, no, it's, uh, I would say that you described vague generalizations of the movie. That would be technically true. And yeah, we'll cut back right now to see how this went. Okay. I'm excited for it. Okay. And we are back. We just watched Casablanca for the first time. So, Steve? Yeah. How do you feel? It's a uh, it's trip of a movie, honestly. It wasn't... It wasn't the love story that I was initially going for. It was much more of a... How do you say? It's like a past love story almost. A mix of like old times with new times. And just... I don't know. It was really unique. I have never seen anything like that before. Initially, um, plot-wise, it was good. The characters were very believable. They weren't just fake kind of characters made up with nothingness. It was much more of a believable and very imitatable types of characters. So... Other than that, I think it was just a great movie, honestly. I mean, I can see why it's commonly known as a one of the greatest movies ever. Yeah, so I would agree with that, mostly. I would say that, so there's definitely 
the love plays a part of it, I would say. But as Steve said, it's more of a how the past affects the present and the future. So there's a... There is sort of a love triangle between the main characters of the movie, basically. You have your male lead, played by Humphrey Bogart, that is Rick. He runs Rick's Cafe American in Casablanca. Then there is Ilse Lund, his past lover from his time in Paris. And she is attached to the revolutionary Victor Laszlo, who had been captured and escaped from three different concentration camps, according to the movie. So it's definitely not that the woman doesn't play a factor. Clearly, Ilsa plays a factor in this, but it's the way that it is set up is here is this woman. She is picking between these two titans of men, basically. Victor Laszlo, the revolutionary, and it alludes to it multiple times. Rick had also been a revolutionary. He is always, it seems to imply that he was some sort of gun runner to various underdogs in conflicts like in Ethiopia and fighting fascists in Spain. But he ends up disillusioned in Casablanca after basically having his heart broken by Elsa in Paris. It's, I find it kind of funny that you said you've never seen a movie like it, and I know what you mean by that. But at the same time, there are a bunch of things in this movie that have influenced pop culture in one way or another. And a bunch of lines have just been used over and over since this movie has came out. Mm -hmm from 90s crime movies to Fall Out Boy song titles. It's a well-treaded dialogue. Yeah, definitely. I definitely noticed a lot of pop culture kind of references. Um, like you said, a lot of pop culture today is based off of some of these cliches that we see in in this movie like uh there's a couple i think this is a start of a long friendship at the very very end that was definitely a very pop culture thing the the theme of france i guess i don't know what it's called la marseillaise yeah that mm, that's a very recognizable tune I immediately recognize it from, what's the movie? Ratatouille. But then <laughs> again, that movie also takes place in France. So <laughs> I don't know. Um, maybe it's just because it's French. But it really kind of solidifies the pop culture idea of what French is and what France is like. Not necessarily what France is like, but the kind of the vibe you get from France. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I think it's good to note that they're not actually in France, being that they're in French Morocco. But I think you 
are hitting the nail on the head with that. I'd like to point out that while they are cliche now, most everything that they have, most of the stuff that we recognize just through cultural osmosis was pretty much originated or was fairly new at the time. So it hadn't been cliche mm -hmm. yet. And then this movie just exploded in popularity and it kind of went through, like you said, this looks like the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Here's looking at you. Of all the gin joints and all the places of all the world. What else? The usual suspects. That was a phrase popularized by this movie. Yeah, I could definitely see all that. Um, I guess also I've never really seen a lot of older movies. So I've heard the name Humphrey Bogart quite a few times, but I've never seen what he looked like as an actor. It's always been, oh, that's Humphrey Bogart or Humphrey Bogart, Humphrey Bogart. And now that I can picture, put a face of a name, I can, it's definitely a lot easier to see why <laughs> a lot of people thought he was kind of a hunk, like he was pretty, he was very attractive. Um, He's a nice looking guy, but he's just, he kind of reminds me of like those, uh, what do you call him? I guess he's like the OG movie star, I would say. Like popular movie star, in my opinion. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. It's, he is not the archetypical classic handsome man but he is definitely adjacent he's dark-haired brooding i think there's some before we'll get back to what i'm gonna say but this movie came out in 1942 so he's there have been people before that kind of have that like roguish quality if you notice at least in this movie, he doesn't really give that many smiles. Like, actual smiles will give smirks here and there. He's got that, oh, I've got your number type of vibe to him. Yeah, exactly. He comes across as kind of a little bit of a bad boy. Kind of like, oh, yeah, I know I'm kind of the shit. But then again... He's he just comes across as what they call it cynical. Yeah, he's definitely a very cynical character. Um, in some cases, some will call it battle hardened from love, maybe just because he's had his heart broken. He's had a lot of different things happen to him with love and life and friendship and. Just general, just general things. And it really doesn't help that they're in the middle of a war. So, yeah, war makes everyone stressed. Again, he, you're right about the battle hardened. He, as mentioned before, has been a gun runner for the underdog in various conflicts around the world. And due to his 
increasing cynical behavior. I say behavior because it doesn't seem like it's innate nature, given the fact that beforehand he was going out of his way to, while he says he was paid well each time, he would fight for what many people would consider the just cause. But given that, he is definitely, besides the love aspect, I think just the world is starting to break him down where he just accepts neutrality throughout his life. Mm -hmm. But if you notice throughout the film, even at the beginning, he still has these like minor ways of helping, of, of bucking the system and fighting against a larger threat, if you will, mm -hmm. such as near the beginning of the movie, when you see people going in and out of the back, the back room gambling, basically, in his bar, one person is notably turned away, and it doesn't explicitly say it at first, but then immediately after you start to notice that, like, oh, that man that he turned away is a representative of, like, the German banking system. Yeah. So he wasn't allowed to gamble. And then when Rick's bartender's like, hey, what do I do with this check? He just rips up the German money, basically. So he's not actually... He will visibly do business with, in this case, Germany, but he won't actually benefit from operating with them. Yeah, definitely. The money system, it was a little hard to follow in the beginning because you had people who were trying to sell diamonds to, in order to make it work. And someone was just like, oh yeah, well, they sell diamonds left and right. So these are kind of worthless. So I can only give you like, I don't think it's like 200 francs or something. And that to me is crazy. Like diamonds are super expensive. So you figure it'd be a hot commodity, but nah, stuff around there runs around like water. To be fair, diamonds in and of themselves really cost that much because of artificial man-made scarcity. Mm -hmm. That and the fact that they're over on Africa where a lot of these are being mined, I can kind of see why they would be less expensive because they're literally just all throughout a massive continent. But yeah, I think you're right. Especially in Casablanca, you see people that are hit hard by the war. And before we get distracted on another tangent about that, I do want to point out that, yes, this is set during World War II, but this is also filmed during World War II, like the war was still ongoing. And I think it's notable to mention that a movie critical of the war that happens during the war, you don't usually see most of those happening while the fighting is still going on. There have been some cases such as, what is it, John Wayne's The Green Beret, but that wasn't really critical as much as being pro-Vietnam propaganda, kind of. But again, you see, you don't usually see that until recently with our forever wars, because we're still technically in them. 18 years later? Yeah. 
Usually it would take a little bit after the conflict for like movies to be blatantly talking about, oh, hey, this war is bad, I guess, or commenting in some way. Not that you would have, not that you don't have films making mention of it in some way or another, more subtly. I personally enjoy, and I feel like this, even four or five years ago, this would have been a very cold take and wouldn't need mentioning. But I do personally enjoy when people outright say, hey, the Nazis, they're bad. Yeah. That's, uh, it really makes, it puts some weird things in perspective because it, it takes these characters such as this police sergeant or police major who's kind of like Gestapo and it kind of makes him out to be a semi good person. Like he's a dynamic character. His personality changes throughout the entire thing. Like initially he's kind of just a, a suck up brown noser and later on and on and on and on he kind of gained much more of a sense of a conscious I guess that's a good way to put it so I think having that really puts into perspective like oh yeah this guy may be a kiss up but he has a change of heart and I think that kind of throws a wrench in the plans that oh yeah all these people in the 40s that were with the the Nazis were just terrible people. And uh, it puts into perspective that, yeah, they have changes of heart. Of course, this is fictitious. I don't know if it actually happened in real life or anything, but just something to be aware of. Yeah, I don't believe it happened in real life, but given it is not 3 a.m., I will be honest. I am not doing too much research immediately. Just as a personal aside for us, and I know this is at least 80% my fault, we should probably start watching movies earlier, but yeah. <laughs> so Captain Renault, who is played by Claude Rains, I believe he was the original Universal Invisible Man. Hmm. You're correct in that he, well, it wasn't part of the Gestapo. He was working with them kind of because technically they're in unoccupied free France, but a French colony anyways, not actual France. But he is definitely opportunistic, looking out for himself more than anything. And throughout the film in various spots you see him using his power to benefit himself until the very end and we won't spoil it too much because it's a good movie you should go watch it he definitely i think you're right in that he grows a conscience i think almost everyone in this movie starts to realize hey we actually have to do something we can't just stand here and let everything happen kind of like that um that old idiom. Fuck. I'm blanking on it. Steve, you know what I'm referring to? The one 
complacency it's evil or some shit. i can't remember off the top of my head i know that i know another one not the one i was looking for but i'm blanking on that too something like all you need for evil to prevail is good men to do nothing oh, yeah. something along those lines that wasn't the original one i was going for but that fits for this movie too it reminds me of I think both Albert Einstein and Martin Luther King, Dr. Martin Luther King had a quote about this, that evil doesn't prevail by, by just being there prevails by good people doing nothing. Or it's kind of on the way of people who are neutral are a side with the oppressor. I still don't think that either of those were what I was thinking of, but those are also applicable. Yeah. Giving a little bit about the world building at Rick's, he kind of, as Captain Renault says a few times, everybody comes to Rick's. You see everyone from all walks of life that happened to make their way to Casablanca, and they show up at Rick's bar. For example, his staff alone has Frenchmen, Arabs, a German, and a Russian. All of this happening during World War II. When mm -hmm. You even see some of them taking part in like underground meetings later, the German specifically. His bar is kind of a makeup of all of the oppressed, sort of. Exactly, yeah. It's it's interesting to see because this seems like one of the first movies that has a really clear and evident flashback. Like right in the middle of the movie, right when he's at this bar drinking and he just says, oh, I know Ilsa will walk in. She's just got to do it. And all of a sudden, flashback. Like, whoa. Where'd this come from? <laughs> so I think that also put a precedence in in future films that, yeah, flashbacks are a good way to introduce more plot instead of just, oh, let's make it singularity kind of like here is a here is an event and then flash forward a month or a year or however long it is. I know in a lot of movies that they do that as well, but it's just, I think it's really cool that they have the flashback because you kind of, it gives it much more of a taste and a suspense of like, oh, how do uh, Rick and Ilsa know each other? What's their history? What's the story behind all that? And it goes right into it in literally just a few scenes. So I think that's something that's cool that this movie introduces. And it's used that throughout pretty much all of movies now. Or most of the movies, I should say, not all movies. So I'm fairly certain that flashbacks have been used in movies before this. Mm. But I will say... I don't know which movie off the top of my head. And out of movies that I have seen, 
that I can remember at least. You might be correct that this is the earliest example I can think of. Mm -hmm. I think you're right. Going back to how influential it is, I will say even just the inclusion of the flashback in this movie would definitely go on to help popularize it even more in other movies to come later on. Yeah, definitely. Because even in other great movies, like I don't remember which did Citizen Kane come before or after Casablanca? I believe it came before. Okay. Well, in Citizen Kane, you hear a lot of, you see a lot of flashbacks and because basically it's kind of like a, I would say kind of a police, not necessarily a thriller, but it's much more of a police oriented story. And they do a lot of questioning and background and you see a lot of flashbacks in that as well. And it's really good, great camera work as well. So you have seen Citizen Kane. This is, this is a tangent. Yes, I have. I saw it in high school. Okay. That is one movie that we do not get to watch for this. Citizen Kane is one year older than Casablanca. Oh, okay. So quick search. It's Wikipedia. It's iffy, but again, I think in this day and age, we know that Wikipedia at least theoretically lists their sources, so it's not like it's complete bullshit. The earliest example of flashback in film is a in 1901, so 41 years before this movie, but, and here's the caveat that lands in your favor, it was mostly rare until a 1939 adaptation of Wuthering Heights. So within three years of this movie coming out, you're not too far off. Mm -hmm. Okay. I like how we have managed to have a relatively dense conversation about this movie without actually talking about the plot. There's definitely enough themes in this movie to have a conversation and talk about what it means without yeah for example from our other podcast reluctant cruise a one piece podcast we break down each bit of the episode and the purpose is specifically to do that but not that there aren't themes in one piece because there are but this general discussion that we're having for this film is just kind of thicker well let me think about that. What did you mean by that? So I gave like half of a bone, not even a full bare bones of the plot description. And we've had almost half an hour of just discussing themes and impacts. Mm -hmm. And I think part of that is because this is a singular work of fiction that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. As opposed to a bunch of long serialized, well, it's a shonen battle anime. So basically it's a heavily visual medium for One Piece. Definitely, yeah. Not that this isn't a visual thing, but it's more the story than the actual visuals themselves. Yeah. It's 
there's a difference between between an anime show and maybe this kind of work in that pretty much you can sum up an entire work like this movie in I would say under 10 sentences um, to do an entire storyline like in an anime would be you, you definitely need probably at least 100 sentences just generally unless it's like super short um so it is one of those medium things that movies are intended for you sit down for an hour and a half or or however long the movie is and you just finish it these animes and even tv shows in general are serialized and they don't expect you to sit down and watch all of them in record time or anything like that you're not trying to break a world record so it's much more of a, a relaxed pace in terms of watching it goes a little more deep in-depth detail and it doesn't necessarily what's a good word for it it allows some motifs and themes to be developed in terms of the show in general, whereas movies have literally a time slot and they have only a certain amount. Not to say that there isn't great details in movies, but in terms of, oh, you get a backstory and you get a backstory and you get a backstory, it's kind of limited. So, Yeah, I would say that that's not really necessary for a movie so i think that's a pretty good distinction to point out between the mediums i don't know if i fully agree with the whole statement but i would definitely say that generally speaking until maybe the last 15 years when did iron man come out 13 years mm-hmm until the MCU got up and running, the closest we had to cinematic universes was probably the Universal Monster movies. Anything else is usually like, well, okay. I take it back. The closest we had gotten before that was slasher movies in the 80s. Yeah. There's a lot of continuity there. But even so, those are like, what are they? They're kind of, they're like installments of of a movie. Like we joke and, and stuff like that. My family's saying, oh, yeah, they're going to come out with a Jaws 40 or uh, or Friday the 13th 63 or whatever. It's just kind of some of those are a little bit more repeatable. Like, yeah, there's common elements in between all of them. However, it's it's a little different in terms of a singular movie that's just like Casablanca, where there's no sequel, there's no prequel. It's literally just the entire plot in one, one fell swoop. Yeah, that's kind of where I was going with that. Until the MCU, besides slasher movies, most movies are pretty much 
self-contained, but since Iron Man, every movie leads into a sequel, leads into Disney Plus spinoff shows. Um, you may say that. I would argue maybe Star Wars was probably one of the first ones. Not at the same capacity. Yeah, definitely not at the same capacity. But, well, there was some. I mean, they had the first three movies of Star Wars and then they had like a spin-off show. I think they had like a holiday special that was just awful. Yeah, that happened after the first movie. Yeah, but it's still kind of like part of that same universe. And then what is it? Ten or fifteen years later they come out with the prequels. No, it was a lot more than fifteen. Well, it's well, 15, actually, wait a minute. it's wait fifteen a minute. or so from No, I think you're right. Yeah. I want to say Jedi came out in 86, so maybe 13. So there's books and comics, but for the most part, it was a pre-planned... Well, George Lucas' original plan was for nine movies. The original trilogy was just the plan until they had the money. So I wouldn't say that it's the same as the MCU, not that it wasn't its own media empire, because Stars is basically the proponent of all of the merch and toys that we now have. Once they started putting out all their action figures tying into the movies, that's why you have a lot of... When movies are coming out, they push a lot of toys that you think, like, they make it seem like, oh, this is going to be an important character when it's just a small droid that wanders in the background in one scene, but the kids bought it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, then again, that's kind of like milking some milking some money off of these consumers and just going all balls to the wall trying to get as many units sold. And I mean, I'm sure that when the sixth movie came out, they probably sold Ewoks and whatnot. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, that is pretty much the main reason for their inclusion. But anyways, we have gone off on a very big tangent. Yes. <laughs> the original point of this was that before, movies mostly had a definite ending, and not everything was a serialized sequel. But yeah, it's a movie about shaking off your complacency and fighting for something. In this case, it's fighting against the Nazis. Mm -hmm. Again, until the last four years, I don't think it was a hot take to say, hey, fuck off, Nazis. But here we are. We should say it again. We should be fighting off Nazis. Yeah, definitely. So here's a question for you. Mm-hmm. Let's say you are Ilsa Lund. Okay. Victor Laszlo or Rick? <sighs> I would go with Rick, in my opinion. Why? What was the pretext of the question? So I'm Ilsa. What am I looking for? What? What? I'm Elsa. What is it that I'm looking for? I don't know. Fucking marriage, I guess. Love. 
Oh. Which one would you pick, considering the movie? Which is one would I pick? Okay. About a love triangle, sort of. Yeah, I would definitely go with Rick. Um, just looks wise, I'm much more attracted to darker features. Like, oh yeah, the dark hair and the dark eyes. Ooh. Um. Another reason is that. Yeah, Laszlo has also done a lot of good things, and he is a very truthful man. But I think he's just also kind of a kiss-ass. Like when he was talking with Ilsa about, oh, yeah, if you had a ticket and if you had uh, papers or whatever and you were in France and you would have gone without me, would would you have done it? Would you have gone or whatever? Kind of that hypothetical question. He's like, oh yeah, I would have gone. And then she was like, well, why didn't you go at this time and this time and this time? And he, he's just kind of a kiss ass and just kind of like, oh yeah, I would do that. And it, it fits my purpose. And so I'm going to say what you want to hear kind of thing. So he stands for his ways, but he's definitely a kiss ass of Elsa. Ilsa. I don't. I think that's just called love. Oh. He's trying to get her to leave for her own safety. So it's not really. I don't know if I would. I guess you could consider that being a kiss ass, but it's basically him lying terribly. She calls him on it, saying, "Oh, I would definitely leave you if I had the opportunity," and she said. What about all these other times you didn't abandon me? Mm -hmm. So I don't know if it's a case of telling her what she wants to hear as much as trying to get her to leave him basically to die in Casablanca so that she can be safe. Mm -hmm. Like I mentioned this earlier, but he basically grabs Rick at one point and says, hey, take my wife who you love and go. Just go. Go over to fucking America with my wife. Yeah. I think, though, that the restraint that Rick has in that he's not, he doesn't seem to have any more, he has emotions for Ilsa, but it's much more of a like, okay, I'm just doing this because I'm the good guy kind of thing. Like, I'm wanting to help people. I'm the rooting for the underdog kind of type of people. And so, I, I don't know, I kind of reflect with that a little more. So, that's kind of probably why I fall for Rick more. <laughs> I mean, with that as a basis, Victor Laszlo is, is the underdog. He was in concentration camps, escaped three different times, keeps running around escaping Nazis, knows all the underground leaders in... What did they say? I think they said Lisbon, yeah. Paris, Marseille, Berlin even, mm -hmm. uh, London. But Rick is more of the person to root for the underdog. He's not necessarily an underdog himself. Like he is kind of, but he's much more of a, I'll help you in whatever way I can, even if I, he says I don't stick my neck out for anyone. And he does, but 
you don't notice it. <laughs> you don't notice him sticking his neck out. You notice much more of like, oh, he's just kind of waving his hand and, and having stuff happen. Like with that lady and their, the couple from Bulgaria. And he was like, oh, yeah, bet on 22, bet on 22, it's going to land. Now go cash in your chips or whatever. Like, he stuck his neck out, but I don't think anybody else really recognized besides necessarily them. Well, <laughs> that's also a lie, too, because there's other people that picked up on it. <laughs> yeah, like, multiple people were like, hey, this dude's cheating. Yeah. Can't remember specifically who I heard it from. But I believe it would be from either one of two different film critics, either William Bibiani or Whitney Seibold, both of the critically acclaimed podcast, mm. as well as other various Los Angeles area organizations. But they specifically pointed out that he, his phrasing is, I stick my neck out for nobody. And what you see is him helping out the little guy throughout various points of the movie. So who other people would refer to as nobodies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know, man. Like, I know from a logical standpoint, one would pick Victor Laszlo over Rick too. So I would also like to say, I definitely think you're crazy. She should have picked Victor Laszlo because he's not an unattractive man either, quite frankly. Even if he is a little gaunt from the whole being in prison part. But um, I'm not like a fucking seemingly perfect fucking revolutionary inspirational figure either. I kind of empathize and identify more with Rick. So on that aspect... I feel inclined to also pick Rick because it feels like I'd be picking myself over a mythical man near Christ-like figure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Logically, yes, Victor Laszlo, obvious choice. Emotionally, I feel like I'm closer to Rick than Victor, so fuck it. Pick Rick, please. <laughs> well, there you have it, folks clean sweep for Rick. It is a reluctant vote for Rick. <laughs> exactly. I'm going to be honest. I kind of assumed that this would be a short podcast because, again, we're not even really going into detail, but we picked up a decent chunk of time. Mm -hmm. It's a very good movie. Yeah, definitely. Good movie, good taste. Overall, in conclusion, I'd say it's a good movie. It's a great starter movie for if you're looking to kind of follow along with those those top 100 list of greatest movies ever kind of thing. It's definitely easy to consume, but it's not super in-depth. And it's not a four-hour movie that you got to sit through in order to get all the plot points. And every little word counts <laughs> and all that, so. Yeah, no, it was a tidy, like, 147, I believe. Mm -hmm. An hour and 47, not 147 minutes. But it was pretty tight, 
as far as movies go. So again, we haven't fully considered a name for this, but to lean into the fucking theme here. So Steve, you would say that you were reluctant for one reason or another to watch this movie. Now that you've seen it, Steve, was it worth it? It was definitely worth it. I have to say it was definitely worth my time. Well, there you have it, folks. Steve said that it was worth it. And I think that wraps it up for us. Our episode for this, I'm not even going to say week because I don't know what the fuck the release schedule for this would be. But it was a good first effort out, I would say. Steve, what do you have to plug? Well, I got Twitter. I've been kind of taking a social media break a little bit, kind of just refreshing myself. I got a job and stuff, so it's like, okay, I don't really have a lot of time for social media, but I kind of peek on there sometimes. But I have a Twitter. It's at Steve Horniak, um, at S-T-E-V-E-H-O-R-N-Y-A-K. And, yeah, that's pretty much it. I just... I haven't really posted a lot. I can't post some random stuff, but uh, but just kind of keep it keep it going. Okay, you can find me on most social media platforms with the handle at El Tubacabra. That's E L T U B A C A B R A. If this actually becomes something we do, I will think up of a social media handle. And I'll put it here at some point. I'll probably just sneak it in at some point. Separate audio track edited in. But, you know, here's looking at you, kid.